Well, good afternoon, everyone. We had a few technical difficulties at Lindsley Avenue this morning, and because of that, the video of the sermon did not record and post to Facebook. So Sunday afternoon, I'm going to go through the sermon once again and try to get it posted to Facebook. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. The topic today was on the temptations of Jesus from Luke chapter 4. The picture that you see on the screen is not a picture from the surface of Mars. That's actually a picture of the type of area in which Jesus is to be found during the temptation. Might as well be a picture of the surface of Mars, because all you see here are the dry rocks. But I want you to keep in mind the size and shape of some of these rocks, because that's very relevant to what hap happens when the devil uh, tempts Jesus here in just a few minutes. So as we're thinking about temptation, we all get tempted. We do. And my question is, do we get tempted by things like this? Now, we're looking at that, depending on the time of day and how recently you've eaten, you might be going, yum, some sort of cherry cheesecake thing. Doesn't matter to me what it is. That looks really fabulous. That kind of thing does tempt me, or perhaps even worse, something like this. You know, if I have that kind of, of layout in front of me, I'm going to be really tempted to be a glutton and eat everything on the table. I don't think temptation really is necessarily meant to cover things like this in the sense of being sinful. I mean, if you did eat an entire plate full of sweets like that and continue to eat, you could easily get toward the idea of gluttony. But when we think of temptations like this, you're tempting me to eat more sugar than I have or to eat more than I really need. We use that word tempted a little bit differently, not always meaning something that would be sinful if we do it. This may be more your style. This would definitely get me. I mean, what is there? There's seven strips of bacon. You know what I call that? And that's usually a good start. Seven strips of bacon. Now, you and I might want some of this. We might want some of the uh, goodies that we have seen before. But when you think about sinful temptation, sometimes it's more like this. Money is a really big temptation for a lot of people because money can lead people to doing things and making choices that are overtly, obviously sinful, engaging in business practices that are dishonest or simply illegal activity. Money is a big driver of things because it is a selfish desire. I want money. Or this one might have two. It could be to overindulge in something of alcohol or to perhaps overindulge in an individual, such as you might see in the picture. People engage in sinful activity from a temptation standpoint when they go after something designed to satisfy a desire or need they have that goes beyond what God wants us to do. So in this case, the last couple of them here certainly could easily be thought of as sinful. So we get tempted by various things. It isn't the same thing for everyone. Maybe bacon doesn't tempt you, although I'd like to get to meet you, I suppose, if you bacon is not something that tempts you. But it's not the same thing for everyone. However, I take comfort in this, a passage from Hebrews chapter 14, verse chapter 4, verse 15. Jesus understands every weakness of ours. Why? Because he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. Jesus was tempted in all the different avenues that we are tempted in. It may not have been the exact same temptation, but that's not what it's talking about. It's in every way. He had been tempted by wanting to use what he had for himself. He was tempted when he was being um, put under a lot of pressure and torture and physical pain to potentially deny God. He had felt the uh, sorrow of betrayal. Uh, he was tempted in so many ways, each 
actual way or portion in a way that we might be tempted, but he did not cross the line and sin. I take comfort in that. Jesus understands. He knows what it was like because he lived it. So I want us to look at Luke 4 this morning, or actually this afternoon, when Jesus went through a direct period of being tempted by the devil and see what we can learn. So when we look at Luke 4, 1 through 2, Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when he they ended, he was hungry. I think that's probably the understatement in the entire Bible. 40 days, he was hungry. The area that Jesus was in, you see Judea up in the top left of the screen, and you see the Dead Sea down toward the bottom right of the screen. It was in that area kind of on that angle, along the edge south of Jerusalem, along the edge of the Dead Sea. It really does tend to look like this. That picture we saw earlier with all the rocks lying on the ground that might as well have been the surface of Mars. This also might conceivably be the surface of Mars. The sky's the wrong color, but otherwise it might as well be a very desolate area, not very hospitable. And by the way, this picture and the other ones are from Farrell Jenkins's travel blog. If you Google that, you'll find a lot of good geographical, historical information about locations of Bible events. I highly recommend that. Farrell Jenkins's travel blog. Here's another one. I mean, it, it's it's just incredible to think somebody would wander through here for 40 days and be living in this kind of, of area, not eating, not eating. So what happens? Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So what's the temptation here? Well, first of all, Jesus really is hungry. So imagine the rumblings for 40 days of not eating. And then he holds the idea out there of bread. I mean, after all, doesn't this make you hungry? Now, we have just eaten lunch down at the uh, Lindsley Avenue building, but I mean, French toast, if that's what it is, or even just a good slice of toasted bread with some syrup and butter on it. The devil is not suggesting anywhere directly stated that Jesus turned stuff into bread and have sweet stuff on it. But the whole idea that if you're really hungry, sometimes these things will make you feel the hunger, feel the hunger. So I really don't think, however, that eating is particularly the temptation. If it's just a matter of eating, that in and of itself is not really much of a temptation here. I think it potentially could be the temptation to doubt himself. Notice the if in what the devil said. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you're really who you say you are. But perhaps the temptation is actually a more dangerous one. as It's in a suggestion to use his powers, quote marks there, his abilities to satisfy himself. Jesus, divine as he is, had the ability to think and do anything, and it would simply be. The problem is, if Jesus is hungry and he gives in to this temptation, in and of itself, perhaps to make bread not, not necessarily sinful, I don't think, but to use his powers for himself, if he does it here, it's going to be a lot easier the next time to use his powers for something else that he wants, and perhaps eventually to use these powers, his abilities to avoid dying on the cross. I mean, Paul seemed to also be very much uh, tempted to this kind of thing. He had his powers as an apostle. There's no indication he ever used them for himself. I think that's the dangerous thing. Sometimes people have these abilities, they are blessed, and they, if they end up using power selfishly, using their resources selfishly, it never stops with the first time. 
So to me, I really tend to think that this is a very clever temptation that the devil pitched to him. If you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. It's not necessarily the eating. It's not necessarily the uh, doubt. I think it's the temptation to use the powers that he has for himself. Once he does that, where would he stop? Where would he stop? Temptation number two. Um, oh, I'm sorry. What the Jesus responds to about that. Jesus answered him and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And some versions continue on, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The quote here is from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. And that point in Deuteronomy, Moses reminded the Jewish people there that God had fed them with manna from heaven, bread falling from heaven. The word manna means what is this? But they needed to remember that life is more than food. Simply having your, your stomach full of food is not living. Now, you might think, if I don't have any food, food's really important. I totally understand that. But life does not consist in simply bread alone, but by what God tells us. So it's much more important that we look at what Jesus' response was, and the message to us is the same. Our physical needs and wants, hunger, thirst, love, companionship, friendship, all these different things certainly are important, but they are not the total of who we are and what God has in store for us. We have a future. Just like Jesus did, we too should not use what we have to benefit ourselves, but to focus on God and other people. The patron saint in a bad way, if you will, of this is the individual called the rich fool, the rich fool. This rich individual had so much stuff that it was his storage locations were busting at the seams. Today, we might think that he goes down to the extra storage place and says, I want the extra large place. The small one you gave me just won't fit. His barns, his storage places are so full, they're busting. So he says, well, what I need to do is get rid of some of this so I can help people. No, that's not what he did. He said to himself, uh, soul, you've got a lot of stuff. Tear down what I've got and build bigger ones and save it all up for me. And God looks at him and says, you're a fool. Tonight you're going to die. And then whose are these things going to be? We cannot fall prey to this temptation ourselves to use any powers we might have or simply resources or talents we have for ourselves. God must be first. Other people must be second. And we should be third or last. I think to me personally, that's the temptation that the devil's really pitching to Jesus. Use what you can for yourself. Make things easy on yourself. And that is a trap. That is a trap. In the second place, uh, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority in their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. This is an interesting temptation. First of all, notice the statement in here that the devil makes, and it's nowhere contradicted directly, that he is the one that has the power in the world today. Paul speaks of the prince of the power of the air. The, the world is, is really Satan's domain to an extent today because the world is a sinful place. It's certainly the devil is in charge of things in the world insofar as sin is ruling the lives of people. But what's really going on here? Well, the devil offers him the world to rule. The strange thing is, being divine, Jesus was God's agent in bringing the world into existence. Paul says, without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. He brought it all into existence. He doesn't need the world to be given to him because it's all his. So I don't know that it's necessarily that. It's his world already. 
So the temptation, I think, really is more of a an escape route, an escape route from the coming challenges and crucifixion. After all, devil's essentially saying, forget all that and serve me and look at all that you'll have right here in the here and now. You certainly aren't going to have the crucifixion if Jesus actually worships the devil because all of that will be off. God's plan would not have come to fruition in that sense. So this is a matter of don't fight the hard fight. Don't go through all this. If we worship the devil, you'll have all these good things that you want that are that are that look like they're enjoyable and pleasurable, and you don't have to go through the tough times. The problem is that is a lie. That is a lie. You might have good times now, but even though most of us would want an escape, what's the problem going to be? Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6, serve God and no other regardless of the cost. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Because if we don't worship God, then we're going to face a future that is a failure, a future of bad outcomes, a future apart from God. If Jesus had fallen for this temptation, he would not have gone to the cross, but he also not only wouldn't have been a savior, but the whole of reality would have been upended. Temptations may seem to provide a shortcut to happiness, to joy, to security, to avoiding something that's unpleasant. But by giving into temptation, we are separating ourselves from God because we give in to sin, and that leads to an ultimate doom and failure. So no, serve God and hold on to him. Follow Jesus's example here. Don't look for the shortcut. In the third temptation, he, the devil, took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and now the devil quotes scripture, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now the devil quotes from Psalm 91, 11, and 12 with this temptation. What's the aim of this one? Well, first of all, I think we need to know where Jesus was when this occurred. This is a model of the temple, and if you see up here in the top left corner, it's, a, it's generally thought that this is where God, uh, the devil took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. And these are people down at the bottom. He's a, probably several hundred feet high. And the devil is essentially saying, jump off, go ahead, show everybody who you are. Jump off. You will not die. You will not crash. God and his angels will save you. And all these people down at the bottom of the temple are going to go, whoa, because Jesus, as he dives off, will be saying, see, I told you all I was powerful. And so throw yourself off. Everybody will do it. So I think what the thing here is, is that Jesus had a long road ahead that led to crucifixion by many of his own people. And so he, why spend all this time trying to teach people and trying to get them all to follow you? Let's do it all in one big event. Let's put on a big show and show who you are. And then people will come running to you because they will see how you are the Messiah. Perhaps, again, another form of a shortcut. Don't worry about trying to teach all these people and all the trouble uh, that that's going to be. Take the giant shortcut and get everybody to follow you. Do this publicly and all people are going to follow you. No need to go through all of what's coming. Maybe this is what the devil thinks might work to get Jesus to fall into temptation and go for it. Well, Jesus answered him. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus responds by once again quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16 this time. Do not test God. Now, you know, sometimes I think, and I'm afraid this is true, we consider doing just that. We say something or think something like this, God, if you are there, then. Well, anytime that statement might occur, that's really trying to put God to the test. If you're there, then do something. If you're there, then fix this. 
If you're there, then help me do these things. We really should never think of a sentence or say a sentence that has God, if you are real, if you are there, that's really putting God to the test. You're telling God, show me. And that's part of putting God to the test. I think that's a similar temptation to the one Jesus is presented with here. Don't put God to the test. He is faithful. And there's always a way out of the temptation if we look for it. Paul says that over in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he's not going to tempt us beyond what we're able. And there is a way of escape out of the temptation if we look for it. You know what I think, to put it in today's terms, too many people seem to want to get in a ride share, an Uber or a Lyft, and have it take them to where the party is, have it take you to where the sinful behavior is. Get me there as fast as you can. Really, if you find yourself in a situation where that stuff is occurring, we ought to be looking for a way to get away from it. But too often, we want to take the taxi. We want to take the Uber to where it's all going on. There's a way out if we stop to look for it. And when we consider a temptation, we usually don't see the entire situation. For example, consider this. You know, from the mouse's perspective, this is a gift from the sky. This mouse smells or, or sees that cheese, and the mouse is like, yum. Now I happen to like cheese. I like it a lot. What's the problem? The mouse does not see or does not understand the consequences if the mouse goes to nibble on that cheese. That will lead to a bad, bad end. Similarly here, this fish sees this lure that's floating around out here, and it looks like it's a nice little minnow. And so the fish will go up and go after the minnow, thinking of a snack, and will encounter the hook. So I will tell a story. When I was a scout leader, we had a campground near Lake Old Hickory Lake, I think, out here in Middle Tennessee. And sometimes in the afternoons, when they were finished going to their merit badge classes, we would have time for fishing. And sometimes we'd have a contest, see which scout could uh, catch the most fish. So that all cast in there. And we had one young man. He would say, got one. He'd come over and show us the fish. Great. We'd, we'd mark that down. And he'd go back, and it seemed like just two or three minutes later, got one. And he easily won the fishing contest. We didn't find out till later that he had made a little pool near where he was fishing. And instead of releasing the fish back out into the lake, he put the fish in the pool and was fishing in the pool. And this poor fish kept biting the lure, kept biting the worm, biting the hook. And he kept yanking this fish up all the time. It was the same fish he caught numerous times. He didn't catch 10 or 15 fish. He caught one fish 10 or 15 times. And it's pretty easy to think and say, well, you know, how dumb can this fish be? You know, fish, you just bit on this thing that was painful, yet we're going to bite on it again. Can you imagine how dumb the fish must be? Here's the kicker. When it comes to temptation and sin, I'm the fish. I'm the fish. Because I keep giving in to temptation and I keep making the same choices over and over again when I should know better by now. Because every time I bite that lure, every time I bite that cheese, I have bad consequences and I sin against God. Don't be the fish. If you don't remember anything else I say today, please focus. Don't be the fish. Run away from temptation instead of running to it. One more thing. One more thing. So Jesus had defeated the devil. He had defeated the tempter, right? Not so fast. When you look at the end of this section, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Jesus had vanquished the tempter. He had, he had met successfully all three of these, but the devil wasn't done with him. 
certainly the devil, you could say, comes back in the Garden of Gethsemane and makes, I mean, Jesus is really wanting to get out of this coming crucifixion. He's praying, please, if there's any way, get this away from me. But he resists that temptation too. Not as I will, but as you will. There are bound to have been other times. He says, the devil says he departed from, the text says he departed from him until an opportune time. The tempter is always going to keep coming back. That's why we can't be the fish. If you get caught this time, you've got to be alert to not get caught the next time. Something that looks too good to be true usually is. Don't be the fish. So as I say, temptations will come back again. The struggles do not go away. In a sports analogy, the best defense is a good offense. Jesus used scripture to meet temptation. Understanding God's word, knowing God's word can help us respond to temptation. And it can also give us more strength of character, becoming the kind of person God wants us to be, so that we will be able to resist temptation easier. The best way to do it is likely to focus on living for God each and every day and prepare for the coming of the tempter. So my question for the end of the day is, are we ready? Am I ready? The best way to do that is to be a member of God's family and to be living for him. If you're not a member of God's family, you need to get ready. You need to become a member of God's family. If you understand who Jesus is, you understand what he did for you. He died for my sins, for your sins, that we might have the opportunity to go home and live with God. Jesus said to repent, turn away from living for yourself and sinful and turn toward living for God. And then he also said we needed to be born again. We needed to die to our old sinful self and be raised to walk in newness of life. And that the New Testament is very clear on is to be immersed in water, to be baptized so that God will cleanse your sins as you get raised up to be a brand new person. That's what Jesus says in Mark 16, 16. And the New Testament is full of the language about how God cleanses our sins. God forgives our sins when we die in the waters of baptism and are raised to be a new person. If you haven't done that, please, please reach out and let's take care of that. Thank you for listening. I hope everybody has a good warm week.